0: Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today's video is not an educational video. It's a sort of a reflection about Afghanistan, a country whose people I love. As I record these words, the city of Kabul, the last remaining city not under the control of Taliban, is about to fall and the Afghan president, the person who called himself the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani has fled the country and is probably in Tajikistan leaving his people, people that he had promised to lead behind. So as we've seen things unfolding in the last couple of weeks and we saw the complete collapse of the Afghan army which was superior in numbers and technology to the Taliban a lot of blame is going around right Uh, starting from U.S. president down to everyone who has an opinion is now blaming the Afghan people and the Afghan army not doing the right thing not fighting for their country And I believe these are false expectations, and this is sort of like blaming the victim. And let me go in detail. How do you build a national army? You build a national army not by just throwing money at them and giving them equipment. You build a national army around certain universalized, accepted national narratives. And then it takes years upon years to build that loyalty to the nation. So in my opinion, what the American experts did, their emphasis was was mostly in creating a democracy, fine, but in creating an army void of its regional and ethnic alliances and somehow superimposing upon those alliances what Clifford Gears would call primordial alliances, a civic, national sense of loyalty. And the failure that we are seeing is not necessarily of Afghan army or Afghan people. It's the failure of that imagination. It's the failure of that imagination because if you de-racinate people from their ethnic communities and give them five or six years of training and give them a salary and then plant them elsewhere, Chances are when the time comes, and if not enough time has passed in developing regimental and military ways of thinking, these people will have nothing to fight for. So let me give you an example. How did the British do it in the colonial times in India? How did they organize the Royal Indian Army whose troops fought for them and died in two world wars? Right? They did it by invoking a kind of local pride. They never tried to disrupt the ethnic identities. The battalions were named after regions, Bengal Rifles, Baloch Regiment, Punjab Regiment. Right? Within each battalion, they will have companies, Pashtun Company, a Sikh Company, a Garwal Company. Those companies would compete against each other. For their own ethnic pride. Then that pride would come together. All ethnic prides would come together to take pride in the battalion, in the regiment. So when they were fighting, they weren't actually fighting for the British Empire. You could have not convinced them to do that. They were fighting for the 15 lancers over here, guides cavalry over there. Because since you had robbed them of their national pride by actually capturing them, You had given them a smaller thing to take pride in, right? And that was the pride in the battalion. Then you also further trained them, sort of, I'm not saying the Americans should have done it in Afghanistan, to disalienate, to alienate them from their own people by giving them a sense of martial pride, right? Now, I don't know how the Americans trained the Afghan army. But what's absolutely evident right now, as we have seen the collapse of this army, is that they they lack any of that kind of professionalism. In the end, if a military force holding a city surrenders and hands over the city to an advancing foe, they either are not committed to defending that city, have nothing at stake there, or they simply have been emotionally and psychologically overwhelmed by the advance of the so-called animal. So what I would try to argue here is that instead of blaming the Afghans for not defending themselves, the Americans and others should also look at what kind of expertise did they use in organizing or reorganizing the Afghan army. What kind of training were they given? What kind of leadership did they have? I mean, if you really need to learn how a badly led big force will collapse on the face of any advance, you could just go to Iraq. I mean, read the materials on the advance of ISIS against the Iraqi army. Same thing happened over there when when ISIS defeated the Iraqi army in the beginning and later in capturing other cities because the army was beset with absenteeism the leadership was corrupt, and the soldiers felt abandoned. They didn't feel supported. So if Ashraf Ghani had a strategy to defend the country against this onslaught of Taliban, which was coming, it was no surprise, He should have a plan. He should have had a plan from the general headquarters. His his generals would have known who will reinforce whom, where will be their reserve located, how would it be employed. None of that we have seen operative in the field. So to be honest, I don't see it as a failure of Afghan people. It's a failure of the leadership, leadership put in place by the United States of America. And that's a sad thing. But knowing the history of Afghanistan, I think it would be premature to write the Afghan people off. What they do need right now is the international support and assurances that they will not be left to the mercy of another brutal regime. That is what they need to hear from their neighbors and from people elsewhere in the world. Now, you know, I'm from Pakistan originally, so I'm hearing a lot of elation and jubilation from certain Pakistani circles. They are happy that American plan has been defeated, the Indian plans, whatever they were in the region, have been defeated. And some of them are actually welcoming the second regime of Taliban. And I think that's sad, because what The message that it sends to the world is that Afghanistan's neighbors, some of them, are okay if a regime comes in Afghanistan and brutalizes its people, right? Humiliates its women, incarcerates them in the houses, and somehow that's a good thing. I think Pakistanis also need to nuance their response to this, right? In their jubilation over American defeat, so-called, or India's defeat, so-called. What they also should keep in mind is is what the Taliban did do before this. And what are they doing right now? The reports coming out of Herat are already, you know, heartbreaking because these so-called warriors have declared that since they have captured this territory, you know, all the women of marriageable age who are single for their property. And fathers and brothers are being asked to offer these women in marriage without their consent to the victorious people. This is what ISIS did. This is what Taliban are doing and will do. This is what you are supporting, clapping about when you, you know, Think about Afghanistan. As a scholar, there is not much I can do. All I have is these words. All my life, that is all I've had. Words that I speak, words that I write, share with people. One thing that I have never done in my life is to sell these words to the powerful. The least I can do with my life and with my words is to utter them in solidarity with the oppressed. Right now, the women, the children, the people of Afghan cities and villages, most of them at least, are facing a time of great peril, an uncertain and maybe a brutal future if we go by the past precedences. So, as a scholar, as a humanist, the least I can do is stand in solidarity with them, share my words in solidarity with them. Maybe that's all I can do. But not doing at least even this much I think is criminal and sad. And I do hope that this Endless night would someday end for Afghanistan. I do hope that they get the chance to decide their own destiny without any impositions from outside and that they have the chance to live dignified, free lives in a modern Afghanistan. But until then, until that day comes, remember whose side you are on now because that will decide your own personal destiny, your own personal view of yourself. If you are on the side of oppressors, if you are on the side of those who would brutally murder their own people, chances are then you're on the wrong side of history. And if you are an American journalist or a critic or a politician, don't blame the Afghan people. You think 30 years of time spent in rebuilding or helping a nation rebuild is enough? No. You owed it to the Afghan people who fought alongside with you against the Taliban. You owed it to them to stay there and help them get through this no matter how long it took. So, Mr. Biden, I voted for you. A Democrat by withdrawing U.S. troops without a peace plan, concrete, and without having in place a peace ke- keeping force, you failed the Afghan people. And so, don't try to blame it on Afghanistan by saying we have spent billions of dollars they should have taken. No, that is irresponsible, and that is a dodge. And That is not expected from someone such as you. You know, and it's a shameful way of talking about Afghanistan. And all of those experts over there on CNN and everyone else, where else, stop blaming Afghanistan, okay? Look at what your own government did, how they abandoned the Afghan people. Same goes for the British and all the other Western alliances. You know, talking peace is easy. Talking human rights is easy. Committing to it and then standing by is another thing. In my humble opinion as a scholar, you all have once again failed Afghanistan. And you don't have the right to blame Afghanistan for this debacle. You made it happen and you should be held accountable by history and by all the people of the world. That's all. These are my few words to the wind. I have no power, no influence, nothing. This is all I have, my words. I send it out into the world. I do hope and pray for a wonderful and best future for my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. May you find peace and you find love from me to you all, he